All right, this morning uh, we've come to um, Esther chapter 7, and so we're going to be looking at that together. Uh, chapter 7 is kind of the, uh, this morning somebody said to me, where are you at in Esther? And I said, well, we're at the fun chapter, chapter 7. <laughs> it, 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 it's kind of fun, it's also kind of tragic, but, but it's, a, it's a fun chapter. It's where things kind of come together. Uh, it's not the end of the book by any means. There are more events to occur, and some are very important that we take a look at. But we're we're going to look at seven today. And last time, where were we? Reset the stage. The king was having insomnia. He couldn't sleep, so he ordered the chronicles of his reign to be brought into his chambers, and someone was assigned to read to him. We don't know who, but he had plenty of attendance, so there were people there that could do that. And what is read is the account of Mordecai uh, saving the king by his going through Esther in order to alert the king that he'd become aware of a plot, quote, to lay hands on him by his two doorkeepers. And uh, that if we went back to figure out uh, when that was in relationship to when this was read, that was back in chapter 2, and putting the pieces together, it was somewhere around five or six years ago, years before the time of chapter 6, that this plot was discovered and dealt with. And so the king, after hearing about what Mordecai had done, and he asked a question, well, what was done for Mordecai? And the servants have to tell him, well, nothing. And so the king asked the question, who is in court? And they look and they see Haman waiting in the court. And um, why was Haman there? Remember why Haman went to the court or went to see the king that day? He's there. To, uh, one of his things that day was to ask the king to hang Mordecai. And he's already started the construction of a gallows to do just that, a very tall gallows, about 75 feet. Last week, the question came up, well, was Haman in the same place as Esther as far as um, he had to have the scepter you know, shown to him and there is another possibility that I didn't think about. My brain was working one step too slow to get to this one. Because Esther only needed that because she hadn't been summoned by the king. And maybe Haman was supposed to report to the king every morning, and so he would be there at the king's request, which is an entirely different set of rules than if he went there without the king's request. Don't know. Uh, he may have been in the same situation where he would need to be recognized. But it's really not a problem because the king orders will bring him in here. Now, why did he bring him in there? Well, he's looking for advice on what good thing to do for Mordecai. And so he asks a question, what should I do for one that I want to honor? What, is, what are Haman's thoughts? Do you remember? Me? Yeah, who could be more worthy of honor than me? I mean, you can just about see his demeanor. And, and imagine what that would have been like. And he was just thrilled that the king would ask that question. Uh, how do I honor someone that I want to honor? 
And so Haman gives his answer. And of course his answer is what he really wants done for him. Well, how does that work out? What does the king say to do? Go take care of that. Do that. Yeah. Good answer. Go do it for Mordecai. And so instead of asking for Mordecai's death on a gallows, he winds up leading Mordecai around through the town square with Mordecai on a king that the horse had ridden in his royal capacity wearing robes king the king had worn in his royal capacity and shouting out ahead this is how the king honors those that he wants to honor and so things are not progressing real well for Haman are they uh, where, what does Mordecai do after they're done walking around and the king and he's been honored by the king through Mordecai's uh, leading the horse around in the proclamations. What, is, what does Mordecai do? He goes back to the king's gate. He goes back to his personal responsibilities to the king. What does Haman do? This is, this is your answer. He goes home. Does he just go home? <laughs> you know, that's not exactly the way it worked, but it's a really good way to understand what's going on there. I mean, he covers his head. He is ashamed. He is a lot of things. And so he hurries home. He doesn't want to be out in the public any longer than he has to. He covers his head on the way, and it says he was mourning. Uh, so he is, he is devastated by what has happened. And so Haman has a habit when he gets home in those last couple of chapters. What does he do? He whines to his wife. Yeah, he whines to his wife and some friends. Uh, and so he tells Zeresh, his wife, and his friends, oh, man, what a day this was and how bad it was. They have a particular response for him, and what is that? If Haman is truly a Jew, and they even start a little bit differently than that, no. this, if this man Haman, before whom you have begun to fall, is a Jew, Mordecai. I'm sorry, thank you. If this man Mordecai is a Jew, you will not succeed. You will be destroyed in essence. What happens while they're still talking? Yeah, here come the servants of the king to cart Haman off for another banquet. Of, of all the things that you might imagine in the world, where somebody would go somewhere with a, a, an expectation that was off the mark, this had to be it. Um, Haman thinks, what does Haman thinks are going on in these banquets? He's being honored. He's being honored. Yeah, he's going with the king. He's on the inside circle. This is the only part of his life at this point in this night, as far as we know, in this part of the day, that's going okay. He does get to go have this special banquet with the queen and the king, and it's just wonderful, which takes us to Esther chapter 7. Um, and I would like, if somebody read us those first six verses of Esther 7, I would appreciate it. So the king and Haman went into, went into feast with 
Queen Esther, and on the second day they were drinking wine, and after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It, is, it shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be filled, fulfilled. The queen Esther, then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Arasuras said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. All right. So there in verse 1, the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And so that's, that's what they're there for. It's a social event. Um, I have trouble visualizing these kinds of things just because of the status of my family and the things I've been a part of in growing up. Uh, you say the word cocktail party to me, which is kind of what this appears to be, um, uh, a banquet with wine afterwards even. And, and I only thing I've got is what I've seen on TV. I've never been to an official event. Um, you know, I don't know how these things go. I have read some interesting things about some presidential dinners where people goofed and did things that were inappropriate and whatever. But all I have for images to draw on is those kinds of things outside of my experience entirely. But here they were at this banquet. It's a kingly, queenly banquet. She set it up. She's done it. Uh, they're there at her request. And so now <clears throat> the banquet has occurred, and they're there drinking wine. And the king said to Esther on this second day again, they're drinking their wine at the banquet, which is over. So once again, Queen Esther, it's time to ask, what is it you really want? What is your petition? Uh, I want to grant it to you even up to half of the kingdom. This is the hyperlative answer that's given to know that I intend to give you whatever you're asking for. And so uh, things are progressing as everybody expected at this point. The queen knew the question was coming. It, at the first banquet, he, he did the same thing, and she said, well, if you come back tomorrow night to another banquet, I will tell you. And so Haman was there. He, everybody knows this is coming. And so here is this question. And in verse 3 then, she begins to give him the answer. And she starts it out with the typical kind of um, message to the king to say, you're the one in charge. This is with respect. It's going to be whatever you say. But she says, if I found favor in your sight, O king... And if it pleases the king, and then she gets right to the request. Um, I had an interaction with, a, well, my wife and I had an interaction with a lady some years ago in a situation where um, someone was having to explain some things to us that 
um, were very definite and not necessarily pleasing, and the lady was very direct. And I said, well, I like directness. But the lady said, most of the time people don't like my directness. So I, I don't know about the kingly situation, but she is, this Esther is absolutely direct. If it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition. What did she just ask for in that first part, first phrase in her request? Spare my life. I'm in mortal danger. Do you suppose the king was a little surprised? Well, maybe little would have to come out of it. I mean, he was, I'm sure, shocked. And my people. So it goes beyond just her. Uh, and she goes on to say, We have been sold, I and my people. Sold not to be slaves. She doesn't say it that way, but she says we've been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have kept quiet, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. What did she mean by that part? Minor. Yeah, if, if, if we were just going into slavery, you've got awfully important things to do. You're the king. That would have been too unimportant to have bothered you with it. But that's not what it is. <clears throat> it is a life and death matter for me and my people. Now, the next thing that happens to me is kind of amazing. The king Asaraus asked <clears throat> Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would presume to do this? Now, does that strike you as odd that he would ask that question? At least a little bit odd? Maybe not entirely odd. I mean, he wants to get the right target, but you, you, you know, you would think that if somebody was going to do this within the kingdom, he would know about it. And by the way, weren't he and Haman not that long ago sitting around drinking wine, feeling good about the declaration that Haman was going to send out? And how much of the details of the declaration is not clear? if the king saw the full declaration or what, but they had had this conversation about not letting these people continue in the kingdom, and by the way, by removing them, and not right say he was going to kill them necessarily, but by removing them, you'll get a lot of money, king, go in your treasury. I mean, you, it just surprises me that, and maybe he made the connection, but still needed to ask. I don't know. But He, he didn't know Esther was a Jew. Well, that's true, but... If me and my people, as a people group, have been sold to be murdered, were there other groups? Maybe there were. Maybe this was a common, maybe this happened more than just with the Jews. I don't know. But here he is saying, who would do this? And Esther gives another very direct answer. A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman... <coughs> became terrified before the king and queen. By the wording, it's pretty clear Haman's terror doesn't occur until he's named. I would have thought the terror would have been a little bit earlier. Uh-oh. Surely she's not a Jew. 
Is she one of the ones that I'm getting ready to put to death? I mean, Haman seems to be a little slow on the uptake here as well. Uh, but um, what's Haman terrified of? Who knows? What I mean by that is when kings are upset, things are going to happen. And obviously, the king has just told Esther, whatever your need is, I want to take care of it up to half the kingdom. So that's that bold statement that says, I want to do whatever you're going to ask me. It's clear she's got the favor of the king. It's clear that in the room what the pecking order is. It's the king, and then it's the queen, and then Haman, as important as he might think he is, is third. Now the servants and everybody else there would be under that, but in terms of the king and the queen, Haman's third. He's got to know at least my influence with the king has just been really disrupted in some fashion. And usually the king's, it's more than just, I'm tired of you, you're fired, go away. So this is what Haman finds in this banquet. And uh, it's the beginning of, I mean, nobody in this room got to read the story fresh, did we? You, you've all heard the story of Esther before, so you know what's coming. But if you were reading this like a novel, it would be, whoa, you know, look what just happened. And, and it's the beginning of, okay, maybe there's going to be some justice in this story after all. And, of course, there's going to be justice because we know the person behind the events that are occurring is God himself. So let's take a look at verses 7 through 10. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs, the king said, A gallows seventy-five feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. So they hung Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. All right. <clears throat> so this news hits the king, hits the party. This Haman is the one that is threatening Esther and her people, whoever that might be, which, of course, we know is the Jewish people that Mordecai has excuse me, that Haman has gone out of his way to try to put to death. And so the king gets up in his anger. Uh, he's been drinking the wine. He gets up from that. And where does he go? 
Goes outside, goes out in the palace garden. Trying to cool down. Trying to, yeah, it, it, is he trying to cool down? Does he need to think about how he wants to deal with Haman or what's going on, trying to sort it out in his head, make sure he fully understands? Don't know what his motives were, but he decides to get away from the people for at least a bit. And so out in the garden he goes. What does Haman do? Grovels. He grovels, yes. Um, in what manner does he grovel? Begs the queen. Yeah, he hangs around to beg the queen for his life. He understands the king's thoughts now are toward the death of Haman himself. And it's also very clear who the king is going to respond to. And that's Esther. Esther's position has been clearly shown. The only person that can save him now is Esther. And so he's begging of Esther that his life be spared. And he's still in that process when the king comes back in. What does the king find when he comes back in from the garden? Yeah, here's Haman on the couch or whatever you want to call it, the furniture that Esther was probably reclining on, and he's um, right there with her. And according to the story, what do you think Haman's doing right here? Begging. Begging. I mean, this is the equivalent of on his hands and knees in the begging form that we would see in a book. This He's... He's imploring Esther. What does the king see and think? Some form of attack. And even the words that use kind of indicate maybe there's something sexual that the king thinks might be going on here. But regardless of whether it includes that or not, uh, he sees this man in a position to do some sort of harm to Esther. And... The king is appalled. Why? What does he say? What, what, what in his words tell you just how appalled he is? It's like you're going to do this and I'm like right here. I'm here. I mean, it's my house. What? Are, in my house, you're going to threaten the queen? I mean, this is... So now who has Haman interposed a very... Um, offensive kind of an attitude. Who's taking offense at Haman now? The king. the king. So originally it was about the queen and this death sentence that had been put on her and her people and now we turn around and find out that Haman is violating the code of conduct whether it's written or not I don't know but that would be expected within the palace. By the way, <clears throat> what what is the code of contact in the palace? What can you do and what can you not do? That's a little bit of an obscure question, but it's a little bit like saying, what's the lion going to have for dinner? And the answer is whatever he wants. The code of conduct in the palace is moment by moment, you can do what the king thinks was good, 
And if the king doesn't like it, you shouldn't have done it. And so here's Haman offending the king greatly. And so there's some other communication that goes on that the timing for Haman could not have been worse. Um, but as soon as, Haman, as soon as the king gets done saying, you're going to assault the queen in the house, what do the servants do? And do what? Cover his face. Why? What's going on with that? Well, I tried to figure that out and try to be definitive, and I can't be. Um, read about nine different kinds of commentators, and they were kind of split equally amongst uh, two or three different things. One of them is, well, that's what you do to somebody under a death sentence. It was already clear by the king's words that <clears throat> Haman's about to lose his life, so they put the they cover his face because that's what you do to somebody as you're going to execute them. Um, also, though, some said, well, in ancient days, if you offended the king, your face was covered so the king wouldn't have to look at your face anymore, and that was a pretty common, quick response. Some others said you covered his face because you've lost your privilege of seeing the king face to face. Well, it really probably doesn't matter, but I found it interesting that we had those three primary responses. And some said all three. Well, they're about to hang him, so they're going to cover his face, plus he can't see the king anymore, and the king doesn't, would want him removed visually from his presence. And then there's this guy, Harbinah, that doesn't do Haman much good. One of the eunuchs before the king so we very well may be talking about one of the people that in the night before was there when we're re reading about Mordecai and what he had done for the king and the king asking, well, what did we do for Mordecai and, and that whole scenario. But one of the king's eunuchs was before the king came in and said, hey, behold, indeed, look, pay attention. This is significant. I mean, that, that's what those words... Uh, mean is, hey, look at attention. This deserves attention. The gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, and he doesn't leave this out, Mordecai being the one who spoke good on behalf of the king. So here is a gallows built just to hang the man that the king that day had ordered to be honored because of what he had done some six or so years prior. How could you make it worse for Haman? I'm sure there are ways, but it's hard to imagine, isn't it? And how does the king respond? Hang him on it. And being good servants, what did they do? Hung they hung him on it. And so that was the end of Mordecai, and the king's anger, anger subsided. He settled down. Got the problem solved for Esther in a way. We're going to see in subsequent chapters we got a long ways to go. So for me, when I look at the book of Esther, um, th this is the chapter that makes Esther 
interesting and fun. Is, that, is it that way for you too? So what about this chapter, this part of the story is gratifying. Why is it the one we go, yeah, yeah, good chapter, good, good set of events to be recorded. Haman got what he deserved, or at least a piece of it. Why else? It went from impending doom for the for God's people, and the tables are turned. And to to a point, we've got some more of that table turning to do in the chapters coming up. But at least the antagonist is taken out. Antagonist for the Jews. Yes, we, we got things out in the open. Esther's speaking up. And she's going to be spared because she thought she could be killed either way. You know, yep. She well, she at least doesn't have the king angry with her, that's for sure. If, if we were to set down, this is not fiction. We are going to quickly agree on that. But if we're going to set down and write some sort of a novel that has this kind of background intrigue, could we have invented better timing? I mean, when you look at what's happened in the two days, or the evening of the, of the banquet, and then the, e the next banquet, that period of time um, is, is pretty fantastic. And that shouldn't surprise us, because we know who is ordering history, right? But at the same time, this, this reads like a good novel of intrigue because of the timing of it all. I mean, it's just one step, the next step, the next step, the next step. I, I didn't get to go, I was, I'm far too young, not far too young, I am too young to know about the days of the B-movies and the cliffhangers and, the, and, and all the movies that, where things happened really quickly. And so when I first saw that first Indiana Jones movie, I'm like, slow down. I mean, there's all... <laughs> You don't even get out of one peril and you're halfway into the next one. And it just kept going and going and and then some folks that had a few years on me go, oh, that's what the movies were when I was a kid. They had all kinds of those. You'd go to the theater for a little bit of money and you could stay all afternoon and watch one after the other and then next week they're going to pick it back up and it's just, but you're always in a peril. I mean, just constantly. There's never any, hardly room for dialogue in places. But anyway. I mean, that's how this goes. I mean, Haman is, goes from being frustrated by Mordecai after being invite, going to a banquet, and then the king's issues come up. In the meantime, Mordecai's start, I'm sorry, Haman has started to build the gallows for Mordecai, and all these things, I mean, just bang, 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 bang. And here is Haman. If you look at it from the standpoint of Haman, he gets to go to the banquet, which is wonderful in his mind, but gets it all ripped up with, with Mordecai not bowing down to him on the way home, he gets home and his advisors and wife say, we'll build a big gallows. So he goes in the next morning to say, hang, hang Mordecai, please, king. And instead, he gets asked a question that he thinks is going to be really great. Instead, he's out wandering around praising Mordecai on behalf of the king. And he comes home and he's all upset over that and he's talking about it. He covered his head, he was mourning. And his family just barely gets the ability to say, well, if he's a Jew, you're going to fail. And you've already begun to fail. 
when they're here to take him to the next banquet. He gets to the banquet, probably trying to relax a little bit and forget about all the other bad things, and Queen Esther makes her request. This Haman guy's trying to kill us. And it just goes very, very quickly. And so when we look at things from the human side, it just seems like um, this is unusually um, ordered and quick. And one thing right after another all lines up in this beautiful sequence that takes less than 24 hours to move Mordecai from the number two man in the kingdom to the man dead on the gallows. I'm saying, sorry, I'm bad with that. Haman moves from the number two man in the kingdom to the man hanging on the gallows. And of course we know he's an evil man and so on. So we, we get to see all that and go, yay. And we should. There's nothing wrong with that. I tried to back up for a minute and imagine this from heaven's perspective. And I think God clearly shows that he has a sense of timing. I mean, we see that in multiple ways in history. Rarely is it a 24-hour period. But if we look at the sense of timing, we can look, for example, at the prophecies of Daniel and see exactly when Jesus would be coming in in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Lots of centuries involved, but the timing is exact. And by the way, out of the prophecies of Daniel, we save one week of the various times that are discussed that will come later. That lines right up with the seven years of the Great Tribulation. And so time is something that God owns, and he puts it together. And I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to say is from God's perspective, there's nothing here that's abrupt or soon. As a matter of fact, we could go back, we looked at it many years, or looked at what happened many years before as the Israelites are coming up out of Egypt into the Promised Land area, and the Amalekites come down and do battle with them, and God says, I'm going to remain at war for the future with the Amalekites. And we see this carried out in the hacking up of Agag and uh, another attack on the Amalekites by Saul. And we looked at that and then we recognized that Haman is a descendant of that King Agag that was hacked up. And so when we look at this and go, wow, what timing, I don't know that God would not agree with us, but he would also be able to point out to us very quickly, well, yeah, I, I, I planned this way, way back then. You know, and like God typically does, he did it with Pharaoh and he does it with others. He lets men do what they want to do out of their own sin and let their own sins be their own undoing because Haman has attacked the Jews. He doesn't realize he's attacked the queen, but Haman's got hatred and evil in his heart. 
and Haman is carrying that out and God is letting and causing the just results to come down to Haman. It still includes his war with the Amalekites, but it also includes the Abrahamic promise that your people are going to expand and be a great nation, lots of people in it, and they will be protected. And oh, out of your people, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So once again, God is protecting both his, the people of Abraham in the promise and also he's protecting the people for which he will always keep a remnant so that we can have the heritage for Jesus that was promised that Jesus would be born, the Messiah, the one to bless all the peoples of the earth, would be born into the Jewish kingdom. And so God is doing all those things at once. Let's look at Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Somebody read that for us. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of his flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to his spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. So let's think about Haman for just a minute. What did Haman sow? Hatred to the point of murderous intent, right? Yeah. What did he reap? Justice. Justice. Yeah. You know, he reaped that hatred, that murderous intent, and out of that, he received the good, right justice of both being caught. God says, you know, your sins will find you out. Be certain of that being caught and hanged. That's a great earthly view and it's true and it's accurate. That's not the only thing that's going on here though, is it? As we start from that small picture and that truth from Galatians that even on a very small level on just, just thinking about Haman, all of these things could be explained as good and correct and aligned with the scriptures. But we can keep going, can't we? Because we can bring in the Amalekite issue we can bring in the issue of this being an attack on the Jews. But we can also find ourselves clear back at Genesis like we talked about last week again, can't we? Clear back where there is a battle for eternity between God and his creation and Satan and that same creation where Satan is trying to upend what God has started in creating the world. And there's a battle right there when Adam and Eve break that barrier and bring sin into the world through the deception of Satan. And so we have all of those things coming together right here in what happens with Esther and Haman. And really, we see the protection of Esther, but we're missing it if we don't also see the glorification of God. God is glorifying himself. God is never mentioned in the book. 
and yet it takes no big imagination, no large amount of extrapolation, but a very small amount to realize God is at work here. And yes, Esther is protected, and yes, the Jews are saved. Yes, all of those right things happen, but God is glorifying himself. When you read that, can you imagine it wasn't God that did it? And so he's glorifying himself. He's glorifying himself in protecting Esther and family and Jews. He's saving the remnant. He's showing his sovereign power in these details. He's continuing his enduring war with the Amalekites. And he's doing it with some public notoriety because don't forget, how was Haman known? Haman was the, remember? Agite. So Haman's known as one of those Amalekites. And so while we might see a personal battle between Haman and the Jews, we also see a very personal battle between God and Satan going on right here. And God glorifies himself. Questions and comments? So um, in, th- in this particular instance in the Bible, would you say this is the first time that anti-Semitism has actually been illustrated? Uh, up until this point, I mean, the Jews were not, they weren't loved by their surroundings, but it was mostly about uh, taking over their land and their riches and the things that they had. But at this point, this had nothing to do with that. This was just simply hatred for the fact that they were Jews. Yeah, and no, I don't think it's the first. And you catch me without having a list of things to talk about. So, but the, why don't I think it's the first? Um, the primary source of anti-Semitism is from Ishmael and his descendants and the various groups that come off of that. We could even go back to some extent and talk about Noah's curse on Canaan and we see then the Canaanites aren't real friendly because of their place in the world economy as one of the key descendants of Noah. And so in reading through Exodus, you have all these people coming up against them. Now part of it is they want to keep their land, but that's not all of it. Um, The descendants of Esau um, never get over the fact, I don't think, I'm sorry, the descendants of um, Isaac, that's where I'm trying to do, not Isaac, but Ishmael. Never get over the fact that they have the same father as Isaac, and yet they don't have the same place in history. And even the discussion that God has uh, with Ishmael's mother, help me out. Well, I can't, I can't say names today, so Hagar. Um, God describes them as being donkeys, and, and I don't mean that in maybe the way we might think of it, but they're going to be stubborn people. They're not going to get along well, and they don't, and particularly don't with the Jews. So I, think, I don't think it would be very difficult because we're, we're well into Israelite history by the time we get to this captivity. This, is, this, is even, this isn't just the Babylonian captivity. Now we're into the Persian takeover of the Babylonians and so they inherit these captives. I mean we've got a lot of years in there 
we're well past King David, we're well past a lot of things, and I think anti-Semitism was around. Was it around for the goal of annihilation? Um, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to do some looking, but um, the Jews have always had a difficult place to be, and even Jacob, after his boys um, go out and kill a town for what was done to Tamar, get the right one, one of the sisters, um, they, Jacob said, okay, now they're all going to hate us. You know, where are we going to go? I mean, Jacob even recognizes that people around them aren't always going to think much of them, partly because of their own actions. And they get pushed. Isaac tries to find a place to settle, and he keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed, and finally, finally founds a place where everybody starts to leave him alone. So in some fashion, it's out there in many ways. Who would add to that? Who has more information you might bring? I think Pharaoh wanted to wipe them out. Well, Pharaoh, yeah, I don't know if Pharaoh, I mean, I think ultimately he wanted to wipe them out when he was chasing them toward the Red Sea. But he, when Pharaoh had them in the throes of Egypt, he liked the workforce. What he didn't like was they're getting so populous and they're, they're you know, organizing and whatever that he viewed them as a threat to his own continued power. He wanted to make sure they could stay under thumb. And that's why he was limiting the birth of the boys, to try to stop their population growth. Any other questions or comments? I thought it was interesting, in, like in five, when uh, Esther said, you know, if I've found favor in your sight, bring Haman and you to the feast. And then she asks again, found favor in her sight. So, I mean, things just kind of build up, and she reinforced that favor in his sight. Yeah, she, she always makes sure she affirmed his yeah. authority. Right. Yep. And, 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 and it was only by his favor that was anything going to happen, because in reality, the threat has its roots in, the threat to annihilate them all, has its roots in the authority that Ahasuerus gave to Haman. I mean, if he had not given Haman more authority than he should have, you can't do what-ifs with God. But, you know, that authority when he gave it was foolish. He gave Haman far too much room to move, and things got out from under his own control. And when Haman said, well, we've got this group of people out here we need to wipe out, he didn't ask many questions according to the text. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that was kind of irresponsible on the king's part, probably. What else would you like to say this morning? Well, when I, when I was in college, um, in preaching class, our, our instructor said, the more important you have of something you have to say, the less time it will take you to say it. He, his example was, for example, if the theater's on fire, it's a one-word speech. <laughs> fire! Okay? Um, and so I, I looked, and I looked at bringing in some of 
chapter eight, but it really needs to tell its own story. So we're going to we're going to stop right here. We'll pick up chapter eight next time. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, um, you have given us the clear evidence of yourself. You've glorified yourself in this account of what happened in the days of Esther. And uh, Lord, we are we are gratified to see these examples where you bring justice even in our own times. Lord, we pray that we would learn from this to trust you and to anticipate being rewarded by you and protected by you. Uh, maybe, Lord, uh, we will suffer in this life, but ultimately we'll be glorified in heaven with you, and for that we are extremely grateful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.